0: Let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray together. And Heavenly Father, as we now turn to your word, we do pray that even as we've just sung, that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit would come and put strength within us, give us grace for every hurdle, that we would be those who run with faith to win the prize of servants good and faithful. Father, we ask for your help and blessing now, in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. What if you could uh, please take your Bible and turn with me to this very, very short section that we're gonna be looking at this morning. It's just two sentences. Uh, That's all uh, this morning. Uh, They take up verses 18 through 20 in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I'm sure you remember the context into which this pastoral epistle, this pastoral letter was written. Timothy has been left in the city of Ephesus by the apostle Paul. And the reason for that is because the church there in Ephesus has been rocked by the emergence of some false teachers, even from within their own ranks. These people are teaching different doctrines. They are trying to drag people away from the true gospel. And so it's Timothy's job to stay in Ephesus and to try and lead the church through This time of crisis. He is to refute false doctrines and he is to teach sound doctrines. And this whole letter, therefore, has been written by Paul to try and help Timothy in this difficult task that is before him. But the little section we're looking at this morning especially instructs Timothy in what he needs to do. And we're going to divide these two sentences into three little chunks uh, this morning. And uh, the first point is this, the good warfare of gospel ministry. The good warfare of gospel ministry. And that's the imagery that uh, Paul uses, isn't it? Uh, to describe what Timothy is going to be engaged in there in Ephesus. Notice there at the end of verse 18, Paul says to Timothy, wage the good warfare. Make no mistake, Paul says to Timothy, gospel ministry is a kind of warfare. It's spiritual warfare, But it is warfare nonetheless. It's brutal. It's messy. There are casualties along the way. There are, of course, victories that we can rejoice in, but there are setbacks that we need to absorb and recover from. The enemy that we're fighting against doesn't play by the rules, the enemy is ferocious. And this, remember, is Paul's letter to the minister in Ephesus. But remember what he said in his letter to the congregation in Ephesus. Again, he uses this imagery of warfare. He said, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Make no mistake, the Christian life is warfare. And in many ways, gospel ministry is the front line of that warfare. And just consider this for a moment. What kind of person... Would you choose to put right on the front line in this good warfare of gospel ministry? Who would you have put in Ephesus? Uh, Maybe someone who is naturally very confident, someone who is naturally very bold, a strong, fearless personality. That's the kind of person we might choose, isn't it, for the front line of warfare, But just remember what kind of person Timothy is. And you'll recall that from elsewhere in in Paul's letters to him, we know that Timothy is still relatively young. He's someone who is timid by nature. He doesn't enjoy the greatest of health. If Timothy was to apply to serve in a military army, he wouldn't get past the first interview. He's not naturally the kind of person who is cut out for a life of warfare. And yet of all people, he has been placed on the front line in Ephesus and he's been told to stay there and to wage the good warfare against the enemy. It is so often the way that God does things, isn't it? That he uses the most unusual and the most unexpected of people to do his work. He chooses what is foolish in the world in order to shame the wise. He chooses what is weak in the world in order to shame the strong. He puts the the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. He used a petrified man called Gideon to bring down the Midianite army. He used a young shepherd boy called David to bring down Goliath. And of course, through a crucified Jew, he destroyed the works of the devil even. And now he's gonna use this young, timid, sickly chap called Timothy to wage this good warfare in Ephesus. You can imagine just how daunted Timothy would feel about being in this situation. Couldn't they have found someone better For this job. And that's why Paul gives Timothy such encouragement in these verses. From this sentence, there are, notice, two main encouragements that Paul gives to Timothy as he wages this good warfare. Now, the first encouragement is this remember your call. Remember your call. And you see, Paul wants Timothy to understand that it wasn't just by accident. That Timothy ended up there in Ephesus and happened to be leading the church there. He didn't just drift into this job of being the minister in Ephesus. He wasn't there even though he clearly wasn't the right person for the job. No, Timothy was very clearly called to this work of ministry and, in particular, the work of ministry in Ephesus. And actually, notice he, he was called in two different ways to this. On the one hand, he was called through Paul's charge to him. So that's what Paul is saying at the start of verse 18, isn't it? This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. This charge came straight from the apostle Paul. Despite uh, Timothy's relative youth, uh, despite his natural timidity, uh, Paul was convinced that this is the man that God would have there in Ephesus leading the church as they wage this good warfare. Right at the start of the letter, Paul has outlined exactly what this charge would involve. He, He said there, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So Paul's charge to Timothy was this, stay in Ephesus, refute those false doctrines and teach sound doctrine. That's the first part of his call, the the charge that, that Paul gave to him. But as well as that, his call also consisted in certain prophecies that had already been made about Timothy. That's where Paul goes next, isn't it, as he continues this unpacking of Timothy's call to the ministry. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. And so Paul's charge to Timothy lined up with certain prophecies that had already been made about Timothy. So I guess in a sense you could say that Timothy received really two calls to the ministry. There was Paul's charge and there were these prophecies. And both of these things lined up with one another. They were in accordance with one another. Now what were these prophecies that had been made about Timothy? Well we don't know specifically what they said. But almost certainly these were the prophecies that were given when Timothy was ordained to the ministry. So you might just want to glance ahead for a second at chapter four and verse 14. And Paul mentions those prophecies again. And he says there, Timothy, uh, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. That is when the council of elders ordained Timothy to the work of ministry. At that point, he received a gift by prophecy. And you see, Paul is saying to Timothy here, remember your call. Remember your call to the ministry, Timothy. Yes, the good warfare of gospel ministry may daunt you greatly, but you're not in it by accident. You were clearly called to this work, both by prophecy and by my charge to you. And as Timothy remembers that twofold call, both Paul's charge and the prophecies that were given to him, that is gonna be of great encouragement and great guidance as well to him as he engages in this good warfare of gospel ministry. Remember your call, Paul says. And for us, well, not many of us are ordained into gospel ministry like Timothy was, But, of course, there is a broader application here, isn't there? And that is wherever you find yourself. Remember, you're not there by accident. Remember, God has placed you there for you to serve him there in that place. He's called you to that particular situation. He's called you to serve him in that marriage or in that state of singleness. He's called you to serve him in that particular household that workplace, that classroom, uh, whatever it may be. And you can be confident that he has chosen for you to serve in that context where you find yourself. You might have chosen someone else to serve in those circumstances and in that situation. But the fact of the matter is that God chose you and in his providence, he called you to it. Let that encourage you as you seek to serve him where he's placed you. There's the the first encouragement for Timothy as he wages the good warfare. Remember your call. Remember your call to this work. And then here's the, the second encouragement, and that is remain faithful. Paul encourages Timothy to remain faithful. And that's where he goes at the start of verse 19. And again, you'll notice there are two parts to the encouragement. And the first is holding faith. By which Paul means Timothy must ensure that he remains faithful in what he believes and subsequently what he teaches therefore as the minister in Ephesus. He must make sure that he's faithful to sound doctrine. Now of course that's always true, isn't it? Every minister must be faithful to sound doctrine. But it's particularly necessary in the context into which Paul is writing this letter, what's going on in in Ephesus as he writes. These people who have arisen in the church and they've started teaching different doctrines. And you see he's saying to Timothy, make sure you don't drift into those same errors that are all around you there. If he's gonna wage the good warfare, he must remain faithful in what he himself believes and what he teaches to his congregation. He must hold the faith. And then the second part of this second encouragement is that he must have a good conscience. And so if holding the faith refers to what Timothy believes, a good conscience refers to how Timothy behaves. Do you see how belief and behavior go side by side in remaining faithful? This faith which Timothy professes has got to show itself in a life of godliness, a life of Christ-like obedience to God. And it would be worse than useless if Timothy was doctrinally sound, and yet on the other hand, he lived a life of lax morals. What a disaster that would be. The 19th century Scottish minister, Robert Murray McShane, once famously said, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. And I'm sure that Paul would would nod in agreement at that statement. He's saying this to Timothy, isn't he? A gospel minister must have a good conscience if he's going to wage the good warfare. And you see, don't you, there are these two parts, therefore, to remaining faithful. Faithfulness in what you believe and faithfulness in how you behave. And later on in the letter, Paul sums up these two things when he says to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself, that is how you behave, and on the teaching, that is what you believe. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And can I ask you to make this a matter for prayer? Pray this for me as, as your minister. Pray it for yourself. Pray it for all of us as a, a church family. Pray that we would remain faithful in both of these two ways. That on the one hand, we would hold the faith. That we would remain faithful in what we believe and what we teach as a church. And on the other hand, that we would maintain a good conscience. Remaining faithful in how we behave, how we live our lives. And you see, it's only if we remain faithful in these two ways that we will be able to wage the good warfare that is gospel ministry. And the problem, of course, is that in the church in Ephesus, there were people who weren't doing this. They weren't waging the good warfare. And again, that's why Paul left Timothy there in Ephesus to deal with this mess (laughs) that had been caused by these who were teaching different doctrines. And that's what Paul is going to refer to next in the second sentence that we're going to look at this morning. And as he does so, he changes the word picture that he's using. You know that Paul loves to Uh, mixes metaphors like this, uh, doesn't he? And so far he's been uh, speaking about warfare, that word picture to describe faithful gospel ministry, good warfare. But what about those who desert faithful gospel ministry? Uh, And so he he changes the picture to describe this and he, he instead uses the picture of a shipwreck. So here's the second point this morning, the shipwreck of leaving the faith. As you probably know, about 11 miles or so off the coastline of County Cork lies the shipwreck of the Lusitania. It was an ocean liner. I'm told that it made over 200 crossings of the Atlantic. And on the 7th of May 1915, during the the First World War, it was torpedoed and and sunk by a a German U-boat, In total, 1,191 people lost their lives in that shipwreck. And it's this horrific picture of of a devastating shipwreck that Paul chooses to describe what it's like when someone leaves the Christian faith. It is a tragedy, isn't it, when that happens? And the, the nature of a shipwreck is that in most cases, you don't yourself realize there's anything wrong until it's too late. And that is you, you've just drifted slightly off course, and you've not realized it, but uh, you've ended up in dangerous waters, maybe some rocks lurking underneath the surface, and you don't realize they're there. Maybe a, a U-boat uh, lurking about to fire a torpedo at you, but you're coasting along, you're blissfully unaware of this danger, and then all of a sudden it's too late, and you've drifted into a disaster, into a a shipwreck, and there are devastating consequences. And you see, Paul mentions two people, in particular from the church in Ephesus, who have experienced this kind of shipwreck of their faith. He mentions Hymenaeus and Alexander. Now, we don't really know who Alexander is. Uh, it's a very common name uh, in those days, and so it's hard to say for sure who exactly Alexander is. But we know a bit more about Hymenaeus. Paul actually mentions him again in Second Timothy. He says to Timothy there, avoid uh, irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. So Hymenaeus was a, a false teacher. He at one time belonged to the congregation in Ephesus, and he started teaching different doctrines, false doctrines. In particular, his false teaching was concerning the resurrection of Christian believers, Now, the Bible makes it very clear this this general resurrection, as we call it, uh, will take place when Jesus returns. And for some strange reason, Hymenaeus was claiming that this resurrection had already happened. And he was wrong on two counts, both in terms of the timing and the nature of that resurrection. Uh, The Bible teaches that this resurrection is future and physical. Hymenaeus was teaching that it is present and present and merely spiritual. And we can assume that Alexander was teaching the same things, as he's mentioned with Hymenaeus here. And the question is, how had they drifted into this false teaching, which then resulted in the shipwreck of their faith? You don't just wake up one morning and suddenly find out that you've deserted the true faith, and all of a sudden, you're a false teacher. No, it's a a gradual process. It's a slide into error. It's a, a slow drift away from the true course of true doctrine. Uh, what had caused this drift in Hymenaeus and Alexander? Well, Paul shows us, he, he says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And so the question is, what does the word this refer to there? What, uh, what had they rejected, which led them towards the shipwreck? And the previous sentence tells us that what they've rejected is a good conscience. By rejecting a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Now our conscience is our our inherent God-given guide to what is right and what is wrong. Paul says Hymenaeus and Alexander had, had rejected this. They ignored what their conscience said. They allowed sinful thoughts and sinful behaviors to have room in their lives. And it resulted in them eventually leaving the true gospel, getting mixed up in these false doctrines. John Calvin summed it up well when he said, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. A bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. John Stott writes these words. He says, if we disregard the voice of conscience, allowing sin to remain unconfessed and unforsaken, our faith will not long survive. Anybody whose conscience has been so manipulated as to be rendered insensitive is in a very dangerous condition, wide open to the deceptions of the devil. And very sadly, it is, of course, a tragedy that we see all too often, this kind of shipwreck. Maybe even a well-known preacher adjusts their stance on a key moral issue, whatever it, it may be. And they depart from the biblical teaching on that matter, and the drift then starts. I give it a year or two, and you'll see that they're teaching all kinds of nonsense. And in some cases have denied the Christian faith altogether. They've made a shipwreck of their faith. And it doesn't just happen with preachers, of course. It happens with all kinds of Christians. That is, they they know what the Bible says about this matter or that matter. But they ignore their conscience. Uh, They make a compromise in their life. They compromise in their beliefs. They compromise in their behaviours. And the drift begins. And you look at that Christian two years later and they have made a shipwreck of their faith. It's well worth asking ourselves honestly, do I see that kind of drift taking place anywhere in my Christian life? Am I ignoring what my conscience is telling me about what is right, what is wrong? Am I allowing things just to, to drift slowly of course, in my Christian life, am I getting lax in spiritual disciplines—the disciplines of Bible reading, the disciplines of prayer? Am I ignoring my need for fellowship with other Christians and my need to gather with them week by week for mutual encouragement and support? Am I walking in disobedience on some matter of ethics? Am I lowering my standards in terms of sexual purity? Am I watering down my beliefs when it comes to difficult doctrines which are unpalatable to the culture that surrounds us? Am I ignoring my conscience on these things? And Paul is telling us here, do you see, by neglecting these matters, by ignoring conscience on these kind of things, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And if you see that kind of drift, even beginning in your Christian life, cry out that by his grace, God would bring you safely back and he would save you from making a shipwreck of your faith. Don Carson says, people do not drift toward holiness. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. And it breaks Paul's heart when he thinks of that Ephesian congregation. Remember, he'd served in that congregation for three years. And now he looks at that church and he he sees that certain members of it have made this shipwreck of their faith. And how is this mess gonna be dealt with? And that brings us to the the third and the final thing to notice this morning. And that is what I'm going to call the severe grace of church discipline. The severe grace of church discipline. So look at what Paul says next in this sentence. It's quite shocking, isn't it? By rejecting this, by rejecting this good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. Now, what on earth does that mean, handing over to Satan? Well, Paul is talking here about church discipline. And in particular, he's talking about the sharp end of church discipline, which is excommunication from the church. And Paul uses a similar kind of language in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He's addressing sexual sin in the church in Corinth. And he says there, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So excommunication is what happens when a a church member persists in beliefs or behaviors which are incompatible with a Christian profession. Now, of course, it could be any number of sins that, lead to this it might be sexual sin like it was in Corinth it might be heretical beliefs and teaching like it was in Ephesus it might be refusal to show forgiveness to another person and to be reconciled to them and after sufficient opportunity has been given for the person to repent of that and after all the necessary processes have taken place in the church pleading for this person to repent and doing so a number of times And at that point, the person then still persists in this heretical belief or this sinful behavior. Then the result is that excommunication then takes place. And that means that they're removed from the membership of the church. That's what Paul means by being handed over to Satan. It means that this person is no longer considered a part of the church, which is Christ's kingdom but instead is now considered a part of the world, which is Satan's domain. And of course, it is always heartbreaking and messy when this happens. The fact of the matter, though, is that warfare is heartbreaking and messy. Shipwrecks are heartbreaking and messy. And the severe grace of church discipline is God's way of cleaning up the mess, uh, healing the broken heartedness. And I call it a severe grace uh, because for all of its severity, church discipline always should have a gracious intention. And that gracious intention is summed up by Paul in those final few words of the sentence. Do you notice that? That they may learn not to blaspheme. And that is the goal of church discipline in this particular case for Hymenaeus and Alexander is that they would come to their senses, that they would learn the right lesson from this severe grace, that it would make them realize that they have made a shipwreck of their faith and they would see the the utter seriousness of their sin and they will therefore turn from it, uh, be forgiven of it by God's grace in Christ. And then fully welcomed back into the fellowship of the church once more. Reconciled to their brothers and sisters in Christ. And thereafter they would stand shoulder to shoulder with the rest of the church. In waging the good warfare. Holding the faith. And a good conscience. Let's pray together. Our heavenly Father, as we contemplate these uh, challenging words at the end of one Timothy chapter one, we thank you for all that they teach us, all that they confront us with, and we recognise that as the church, we are engaged in spiritual warfare. And we pray that you would equip and strengthen us both individually and together as a church family to wage that good warfare. And whatever you have placed us, help us to rem- remember that it is you who have called us to this place. Help us to serve you faithfully there. Help us to hold the faith, remaining faithful in what we believe and what we teach. Help us to maintain a good conscience, remaining faithful in how we behave, how we live our lives. And we've been reminded today of the shipwreck That is caused when we reject a good conscience and leave the faith and father we humble ourselves before you and we ask that if there is any drift in our lives that you would help us to see it and that by your grace you would draw us back to you draw us back to a, a full and faithful walk before you both in our beliefs and in our behaviors and as the psalmist writes search me O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.